This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome back to Eli Reads. This is Salambo, chapter 13, so an unlucky number, and it's a super unlucky episode. This is where it gets dark. I don't think there are any swears in this chapter, unless they're in some dialect I don't understand, but I'm probably going to put an explicit warning on this podcast episode anyway. You're going to find out why. This is chapter 13, Moloch. The barbarians had no need of a circumvallation on the side of Africa, for it was theirs. But to facilitate the approach to the walls, the entrenchments bordering the ditch were thrown down. Matho next divided the army into great semicircles so as to encompass Carthage the better. The hoplites of the mercenaries were placed in the first rank, and behind them the slingers and horsemen. Quite at the back were the baggage, chariots and horses, and the engines bristled in front of this throng at a distance of 300 paces from the towers. Amid the infinite variety of their nomenclature, which changed several times in the course of the centuries, these machines might be reduced to two systems. Some acted like slings, and the rest like bows. The first, which were the catapults, was composed of a square frame with two vertical uprights and a horizontal bar. In its anterior portion was a cylinder, furnished with cables, which held back a great beam bearing a spoon for the reception of projectiles. Its base was caught in a skein of twisted thread, and when the ropes were let go, it sprang up and struck against the bar, which, checking it with a shock, multiplied its power. The second presented a more complicated mechanism. A crossbar had its center fixed on a little pillar, And from this point of junction, there branched off at right angles a sort of channel. Two caps containing twists of horsehair stood at the extremities of the crossbar. Two small beams were fastened to them to hold the extremities of a rope, which was brought to the bottom of the channel upon a tablet of bronze. 
This metal plate was released by a spring, and sliding in grooves impelled the arrows. The catapults were likewise called onagers, after the wild asses which fling up stones with their feet, and the ballistas scorpions, on account of a hook which stood upon the tablet, and being lowered by a blow of the fist, released the spring. Their construction required learned calculations. The wood selected had to be of the hardest substance, and their gearing all of brass. They were stretched with levers, tackle blocks, capstans, or tympanums. The direction of the shooting was changed by means of strong pivots. They were moved forward on cylinders, and the most considerable of them, which were brought piece by piece, were set up in front of the enemy. Spendius arranged three great catapults opposite the three principal angles. He placed a ram before every gate, a ballista before every tower, while caraballistas were to move about in the rear. But it was necessary to protect them against the fire thrown by the besieged, and first of all to fill up the trench, which separated them from the walls. They pushed forward galleries formed of hurdles of green reeds and oaken semicircles like enormous shields gliding on three wheels. The workers were sheltered in little huts covered with raw hides and stuffed with a rack, The catapults and ballistas were protected by rope curtains which had been steeped in vinegar to render them incombustible. The women and children went to procure stones on the strand and gathered earth with their hands and brought it to the soldiers. The Carthaginians also made preparations. Hamilcar had speedily reassured them by declaring that there was enough water left in the cisterns for 123 days. This assertion, together with his presence, and above all, that of the Zamph among them, gave them good hopes. Carthage recovered from its dejection. Those who were not of Chananitish origin were carried away by the passion of the rest. The slaves were armed, the arsenals were emptied, and every citizen had his own post and his own employment. Twelve hundred of the fugitives had survived, and the Sufit made them all captains, and carpenters, armorers, blacksmiths, and goldsmiths were entrusted with the engines. The Carthaginians had kept a few, in spite of the conditions of the peace with Rome. These were repaired. They understood such work. The two northern and eastern sides, being protected by the sea and the gulf, remained inaccessible. On the wall fronting the barbarians, they collected tree trunks, millstones, vases filled with sulfur, and vats filled with oil, and built furnaces, Stones were heaped up on the platforms of the towers, and the houses bordering immediately on the rampart were crammed with sand in order to strengthen them and increase its thickness. The barbarians grew angry at the sight of these preparations. They wished to fight at once. The weights which they put into the catapults were so extravagantly heavy that the beams broke, and the attack was delayed. At last, on the thirteenth day of the month of Shabar, at sunrise, a great blow was heard at the gate of Camon. Seventy-five soldiers were pulling at ropes, arranged at the base of a gigantic beam, which was suspended horizontally by chains hanging from a framework, and which terminated in a ram's head of pure brass. It had been swathed in ox hides. It was bound at intervals with iron bracelets. It was thrice as thick as a man's body, 120 cubits long, and under the crowd of naked arms pushing it forward and drawing it back, it moved to and fro with a regular oscillation. The other rams, before the other gates, began to be in motion. 
Men might be seen mounting from step to step in the hollow wheels of the tympanums. The pulleys and caps grated. The rope curtains were lowered. And showers of stones and showers of arrows poured forth simultaneously. All the scattered slingers ran up. Some approached the rampart, hiding pots of resin under their shields. Then they would hurl these with all their might. This hail of bullets, darts, and flames passed above the first ranks in the form of a curve which fell behind the walls. But long cranes, used for masting vessels, were reared on the summit of the ramparts, and from them there descended some of those enormous pinchers which terminated in two semicircles, toothed on the inside, and they bit the rams. The soldiers clung to the beam and drew it back. The Carthaginians hauled in order to pull it up, and the action was prolonged until the evening. When the mercenaries resumed their task on the following day, the tops of the walls were completely carpeted with bales of cotton, sails, and cushions. The battlements were stopped up with mats, and a line of forks and blades fixed upon sticks might be distinguished among the cranes on the rampart. A furious resistance immediately began. Trunks of trees fastened to cables fell and rose alternately and battered the rams. Cramps hurled by the ballistas tore away the roofs of the huts, and streams of flints and pebbles poured from the platforms of the towers. At last, the rams broke the gates of Camon and Tagast. But the Carthaginians had piled up such an abundance of materials on the inside that the leaves did not open. They remained standing. Then they drove augers against the walls. These were applied to the joints of the blocks so as to detach the latter. The engines were better managed. The men serving them were divided into squads, and they were worked from morning till evening without interruption and with the monotonous precision of a weaver's loom. Spendius returned to them untiringly. It was he who stretched the skeins of the ballistas. In order that the twin tensions might completely correspond, the ropes, as they were tightened, were struck on the right and left alternately until both sides gave out an equal sound. Spendius would mount upon the timbers, he would strike the ropes, softly, with the extremity of his foot, and strain his ears like a musician tuning a lyre. Then, when the beam of the catapult rose, when the pillar of the ballista trembled with the shock of the spring, when the stones were shooting in rays and the darts pouring in streams, he would incline his whole body and fling his arms into the air as though to follow them. The soldiers admired his skill and executed his commands. In the gaiety of their work, they gave utterance to jests on the names of the machines. Thus, the pliers for seizing the rams were called wolves, and the galleries were covered with vines. They were lambs, or they were going to gather the grapes. And as they loaded their pieces, they would say to the onagers, Come, pick well! And to the scorpions, pierce them to the heart. These jokes, which were ever the same, kept up their courage. Nevertheless, the machines did not demolish the rampart. It was formed of two walls and was completely filled with earth. The upper portions were beaten down, but each time the besieged raised them again. Matho ordered the construction of wooden towers which should be as high as the towers of stone. They cast turf, stakes, pebbles, and chariots with their wheels into the trench so as to fill it up the more quickly. But before this was accomplished, the immense throng of the barbarians undulated over the plain with a single movement and came beating against the foot of the walls like an overflowing sea. They moved forward the rope ladders, straight ladders, and sambucas, 
the latter consisting of two poles from which a series of bamboos terminating in a movable bridge were lowered by means of tackling. They formed numerous straight lines resting against the wall, and the mercenaries mounted them in files, holding their weapons in their hands. Not a Carthaginian showed himself. Already two-thirds of the ramparts had been covered. Then the battlements opened, vomiting flames and smoke like dragon jaws. The sand scattered and entered the joints of their armor. The petroleum fastened on their garments. The liquid lead hopped on their helmets and made holes in their flesh. A rain of sparks splashed against their faces, and eyeless orbits seemed to weep tears as big as almonds. There were men all yellow with oil, with their hair in flames. They began to run and set fire to the rest. They were extinguished in mantles steeped in blood, which were thrown from a distance over their faces. Some who had no wounds remained motionless, stiffer than stakes. Their mouths opened and their arms outspread. The assault was renewed for several days in succession, the mercenaries hoping to triumph by extraordinary energy and audacity. Sometimes a man raised on the shoulders of another would drive a pin between the stones and then, making use of it as a step to reach further, would place a second and a third. And protected by the edge of the battlements which stood out from the wall, they would gradually raise themselves in this way, but on reaching a certain height they always fell back again. The great trench was full to overflowing. The wounded were massed pell-mell with the dead and dying beneath the footsteps of the living. Calcined trunks formed black spots amid opened entrails, scattered brains, and pools of blood, and arms and legs projecting halfway out of a heap would stand straight up like props in a burning vineyard. The ladders proving insufficient, the tolenos were brought into requisition, instruments consisting of a long beam set transversely upon another, and bearing at its extremity a quadrangular basket which would hold thirty foot soldiers with their weapons. Matho wished to ascend in the first that was ready. Spendius stopped him. Some men bent over a capstan. The great beam rose, became horizontal, reared itself almost vertically, and being overweighted at the end, bent like a huge reed. The soldiers who were crowded together were hidden up to their chins. Only their helmet plumes could be seen. At last, when it was twenty cubits high in the air, it turned several times to the right and to the left, and then was depressed, and like a giant arm holding a cohort of pygmies in its hand, it laid the basket full of men upon the edge of the wall. They leaped into the crowd, and never returned. All the other Tolenos were speedily made ready, but a hundred times as many would have been needed for the capture of the town. They were utilized in a murderous fashion. Ethiopian archers were placed in the baskets. Then, the cables having been fastened, they remained suspended and shot poisoned arrows. The fifty Tolenos commanding the battlements thus surrounded Carthage like monstrous vultures, and the Negroes laughed to see the guards on the rampart dying in grievous convulsions. Hamilcar sent hoplites to these posts, and every morning made them drink the juice of certain herbs which protected them against the poison. One evening, when it was dark... He embarked the best of his soldiers on lighters and planks, and turning to the right of the harbor, disembarked on the Tania. Then he advanced to the first lines of the barbarians, and taking them in flank, made a great slaughter. Men hanging to ropes would descend at night from the top of the wall with torches in their hands, burn the works of the mercenaries, and then mount up again. Matho was exasperated. Every obstacle strengthened his wrath, which led him into terrible extravagances. 
He mentally summoned Salambo to an interview, and then he waited. She did not come. This seemed to him like a fresh piece of treachery, and henceforth he execrated her. If he had seen her corpse, he would perhaps have gone away. He doubled the outposts. He planted forks at the foot of the rampart. He drove caltrops into the ground, and he commanded the Libyans to bring him a whole forest that he might set it on fire and burn Carthage like a den of foxes. Spendius went on obstinately with the siege. He sought to invent terrible machines, such as never before had been constructed. The other barbarians, encamped at a distance on the isthmus, were amazed at these delays. They murmured, and they were let loose. And then they rushed with their cutlasses and javelins and beat against the gates with them. But the nakedness of their bodies facilitating the infliction of wounds, the Carthaginians massacred them freely, and the mercenaries rejoiced at it, no doubt through jealousy about the plunder. Hence there resulted quarrels and combats between them. Then, the country having been ravaged, provisions were soon scarce. They grew disheartened. Numerous hordes went away, but the crowd was so great that the loss was not apparent. The best of them tried to dig mines, but the earth, being badly supported, fell in. They began again in other places, but Hamilcar always guessed the direction that they were taking by holding his ear against a bronze shield. He bored countermines beneath the path along which the wooden towers were to move, and when they were pushed forward, they sank into the holes. At last, all recognized that the town was impregnable, unless a long terrace was raised at the same height as the walls so as to enable them to fight on the same level. The top of it should be paved so that the machines might be rolled along. Then Carthage would find it quite impossible to resist. The town was beginning to suffer from thirst. The water, which was worth two casitas, the bath at the opening of the siege, was now sold for a shekel of silver. The stores of meat and corn were also becoming exhausted. There was a dread of famine, and some even began to speak of useless mouths, which terrified everyone. From the square of Camon to the temple of Melkarth, the streets were cumbered with corpses, and as it was the end of the summer, the combatants were annoyed by great black flies. Old men carried off the wounded, and the devout continued the fictitious funerals for their relatives and friends who had died far away during the war. Waxen statues with clothes and hair were displayed across the gates, and they melted in the heat of the tapers burning beside them. The paint flowed down upon their shoulders, and tears streamed over the faces of the living as they chanted mournful songs beside them. The crowd, meanwhile, ran to and fro, armed bands passed, captains shouted orders, while the shock of the rams beating against the rampart was constantly heard. The temperature became so heavy that the bodies swelled and would no longer fit into the coffins. They were burned in the center of the courts. But the fires, being too much confined, kindled the neighboring walls, and long flames suddenly burst from the houses like blood spurting from an artery. Thus Moloch was in possession of Carthage. He clasped the ramparts. He rolled through the streets. He devoured the very corpses. Men wearing cloaks made of collected rags in token of despair stationed themselves at the corners of the crossways. They declaimed against the ancients and against Hamilcar, predicted complete ruin to the people, and invited them to universal destruction and license. The most dangerous were the henbane drinkers. In their crisis, they believed themselves wild beasts and leaped upon the passers-by to rend them. Mobs formed around them, and the defense of Carthage was forgotten. 
The Sufit devised the payment of others to support his policy. In order to retain the genius of the gods within their town, their images had been covered with chains, black veils were placed upon the Patek gods, and hair cloths around the altars. And attempts were made to excite the pride and jealousy of the balls by singing in their ears, Thou art about to suffer thyself to be vanquished. Are the others perchance more strong? Show thyself. Aid us, that the peoples may not say, Where now are their gods? The colleges of the pontiffs were agitated by unceasing anxiety. Those of Rebetna were especially afraid, the restoration of the Zamph having been of no avail. They kept themselves shut up in the third enclosure, which was as impregnable as a fortress. Only one among them, the high priest Shahabarim, ventured to go out. He used to visit Salambo, but he would either remain perfectly silent, gazing at her with fixed eyeballs, or else would be lavish of words, and the reproaches that he uttered were harder than ever. With inconceivable inconsistency, he could not forgive the young girl for carrying out his commands. Shahabaram had guessed all, and this haunting thought revived the jealousies of his impotence. He accused her of being the cause of the war. Matho, according to him, was besieging Carthage to recover the Zamph, and he poured out imprecations and sarcasms upon this barbarian who pretended to the possession of holy things. Yet it was not this that the priest wished to say. But just now, Salambo felt no terror of him. The anguish which she used formerly to suffer had left her. A strange peacefulness possessed her. Her gaze was less wandering and shone with a limpid fire. Meanwhile, the python had become ill again, and as Salambo, on the contrary, appeared to be recovering, old Tanakh rejoiced in the conviction that by its decline it was taking away the languor of her mistress. One morning she found it coiled up behind the bed of oxhides, colder than marble, and with its head hidden by a heap of worms. Her cries brought Salambo to the spot. She turned it over for a while with the tip of her sandal, and the slave was amazed at her insensibility. Hamilcar's daughter no longer prolonged her fasts with so much fervor. She passed whole days on the top of her terrace, leaning her elbows against the balustrade and amusing herself by looking out before her. The summits of the walls at the end of the town cut uneven zigzags upon the sky, and the lances of the sentries formed what was like a border of corn ears throughout their length. Further away, she could see the maneuvers of the barbarians between the towers, on days when the siege was interrupted, she could even distinguish their occupations. They mended their weapons, greased their hair, and washed their blood-stained arms in the sea. The tents were closed, the beasts of burden were feeding, and in the distance the scythes of the chariots, which were all ranged in a semicircle, looked like a silver scimitar lying at the base of the mountains. Shahabarim's talk recurred to her memory. She was waiting for Narhavas, her betrothed, in spite of her hatred, she would have liked to see Matho again. Of all the Carthaginians, she was perhaps the only one who would have spoken to him without fear. Her father often came into her room. He would sit down, panting on the cushions, and gaze at her with an almost tender look, as if he found some rest from his fatigues in the sight of her. 
He sometimes questioned her about her journey to the camp of the mercenaries. He even asked her whether anyone had urged her to it, and with a shake of her head, she answered, no. So proud was Salambo of having saved the Zamf. But the Sufit always came back to Matho under pretense of making military inquiries. He could not understand how the hours which she had spent in the tent had been employed. Salambo, in fact, said nothing about Gisco, for as words had an effective power in themselves, curses, if reported to anyone, might be turned against him, and she was silent about her wish to assassinate, lest she should be blamed for not having yielded to it. She said that the Shalashim appeared furious, that he had shouted a great deal, and that he had then fallen asleep. Salambo told no more. Through shame, perhaps. Or else because she was led by her extreme ingenuousness to attach but little importance to the soldiers' kisses. Moreover, it all floated through her head in a melancholy and misty fashion like the recollection of a depressing dream, and she would not have known in what way or in what words to express it. One evening, when they were thus face to face with each other, Tanakh came in looking quite scared. An old man with a child was yonder in the courts and wished to see the Sufit. Hamilcar turned pale and then quickly replied, Let him come up. Idibal entered without prostrating himself. He held a young boy covered with a goat's hair cloak by the hand, and at once raised the hood which screened his face. Here he is, master, take him. The Sufit and the slave went into a corner of the room. The child remained in the center, standing upright, and with a gaze of attention rather than of astonishment, he surveyed the ceiling, the furniture, the pearl necklaces trailing on the purple draperies, and the majestic maiden who was bending over towards him, he was perhaps ten years old, and was not taller than a Roman sword. His curly hair shaded his swelling forehead. His eyeballs looked as if they were seeking for space. The nostrils of his delicate nose were broad and palpitating, and upon his whole person was displayed the indefinable splendor of those who are destined to great enterprises. When he had cast aside his extremely heavy cloak, he remained clad in a lynx skin, which was fastened about his waist, and he rested his little naked feet, which were all white with dust, resolutely upon the pavement. But he no doubt divined that important matters were under discussion, for he stood motionless, with one hand behind his back, his chin lowered, and a finger in his mouth. At last Hamilcar attracted Salambo with a sign, and said to her in a low voice, you will keep him with you, you understand. No one, even though belonging to the house, must know of his existence. Then, behind the door, he again asked Itabal whether he was quite sure that they had not been noticed. No, said the slave, the streets were empty. As the war filled all the provinces, he had feared for his master's son. Then, not knowing where to hide him, he had come along the coasts in a sloop, and for three days Itabal had been tacking about in the gulf and watching the ramparts. At last, that evening... As the environs of Camon seemed to be deserted, he had passed briskly through the channel and landed near the arsenal, the entrance to the harbor being free. But soon the barbarians posted an immense raft in front of it in order to prevent the Carthaginians from coming out. They were again rearing the wooden towers, and the terrace was rising at the same time. 
Outside communications were cut off, and an intolerable famine set in. The besieged killed all the dogs, all the mules, all the asses, and then the fifteen elephants which the Sufid had brought back. The lions of the temple of Moloch had become ferocious, and the Herodules no longer durst approach them. They were fed at first with the wounded barbarians. Then they were thrown corpses that were still warm. They refused them, and they all died. People wandered in the twilight along the old enclosures and gathered grass and flowers among the stones to boil them in wine, wine being cheaper than water. Others crept as far as the enemy's outposts and entered the tents to steal food, and the stupefied barbarians sometimes allowed them to return. At last a day arrived when the ancients resolved to slaughter the horses of Eshmoon privately. They were holy animals, whose manes were plaited by the pontiffs with gold ribbons, and whose existence denoted the motion of the sun, the idea of fire in its most exalted form. Their flesh was cut into equal portions and buried behind the altar. Then, every evening, the ancients, alleging some act of devotion, would go up to the temple and regale themselves in secret, and each would take away a piece beneath his tunic for his children. In the deserted quarters remote from the walls, the inhabitants, whose misery was not so great, had barricaded themselves through fear of the rest. The stones from the catapults and the demolitions commanded for purposes of defense had accumulated heaps of ruins in the middle of the streets. At the quietest times, masses of people would suddenly rush along with shouts, and from the top of the Acropolis, the conflagrations were like purple rags scattered upon the terraces, twisted by the wind. The three great catapults did not stop, in spite of all these works. Their ravages were extraordinary. Thus, a man's head rebounded from the pediment of the Sicitia. A woman who was being confined in the street of Canisto was crushed by a block of marble, and her child was carried with the bed as far as the crossways of Sanassin, where the coverlet was found. The most annoying were the bullets of the slingers. They fell upon the roofs and in the gardens and in the middle of the courts, while people were at table before a slender meal with their hearts big with sighs. These cruel projectiles bore engraved letters which stamped themselves upon the flesh, and insults might be read on corpses, such as pig, jackal, vermin, and sometimes jests, catch it, or I deserve that. The portion of the rampart which extended from the corner of the harbors to the height of the cisterns was broken down. Then the people of Malqua found themselves caught, between the old enclosure of Birsa behind and the barbarians in front. But there was enough to be done in thickening the wall and making it as high as possible without troubling about them. They were abandoned, all perished. And although they were generally hated, Hamilcar came to be greatly abhorred. On the morrow he opened the pits in which he kept stores of corn, and his stewards gave it to the people. For three days they gorged themselves. Their thirst, however, only became the more intolerable— and they could constantly see before them the long cascade formed by the clear, falling water of the aqueduct. A thin vapor with a rainbow beside it went up from its base beneath the rays of the sun, and a little stream curving through the plain fell into the gulf. Hamilcar did not give way. He was reckoning upon an event, upon something decisive and extraordinary. His own slaves tore off the silver plates from the temple of Melkar. Four long boats were drawn out of the harbor. 
They were brought by means of capstans to the foot of the Mapalian quarter. The wall facing the shore was bored, and they set out for the Gauls to buy mercenaries there at no matter what price. Nevertheless, Hamilcar was distressed at his inability to communicate with the king of the Numidians, for he knew that he was behind the barbarians and ready to fall upon them. But Narhavas, being too weak, was not going to make any venture alone, and the Sufit had the rampart raised twelve palms high. All the material in the arsenals piled up in the Acropolis, and the machines repaired once more. Sinews taken from bulls' necks, or else stags' hamstrings, were commonly employed for the twists of the catapults. However, neither stags nor bulls were in existence in Carthage. Hamilcar asked the ancients for the hair of their wives. All sacrificed it, but the quantity was not sufficient. In the buildings of the Sicitia, there were 1,200 marriageable slaves destined for prostitution in Greece and Italy, and their hair, having been rendered elastic by the use of unguents, was wonderfully well adapted for engines of war, but the subsequent loss would be too great. Accordingly, it was decided that a choice should be made of the finest heads of hair among the wives of the plebeians. Careless of their country's needs, they shrieked in despair when the servants of the hundred came with scissors to lay hands upon them. The barbarians were animated with increased fury. They could be seen in the distance taking fat from the dead to grease their machines, while others pulled out the nails and stitched them end to end to make cuirasses. They devised a plan of putting into the catapults vessels filled with serpents, which had been brought by the Negroes. The clay pots broke on the flagstones. The serpents ran about, seemed to multiply, and so numerous were they to issue naturally from the walls. Then the barbarians, not satisfied with their invention, improved upon it. They hurled all kinds of filth, human excrements, pieces of carrion, corpses. The plague reappeared. The teeth of the Carthaginians fell out of their mouths. Their gums were discolored, like those of camels after too long a journey. The machines were set up on the terrace, although the latter did not as yet reach everywhere to the height of the rampart. Before the twenty-three towers on the fortification stood twenty-three others of wood. All the Tolenos were mounted again, and in the center, a little further back, appeared the formidable Helepolis of Demetrius Poliorcetes, which Spendius had at last reconstructed. Of pyramidical shape, like the Pharos of Alexandria, it was 130 cubits high and 23 wide, with nine stories, diminishing as they approached the summit, and protected by scales of brass. They were pierced with numerous doors and were filled with soldiers, and on the upper platform there stood a catapult flanked by two ballistas. Then Hamilcar planted crosses for those who should speak of surrender, and even the women were brigaded. The people lay in the streets and waited, full of distress. Then one morning before sunrise, it was the seventh day of the month of Nissan, they heard a great shout, uttered by all the barbarians simultaneously. The leaden-tubed trumpets pealed, and the great Paphlagonian horns bellowed like bulls, all rose and ran to the rampart. A forest of lances, pikes, and swords bristled at its base. It leaped upon the wall. The ladders grappled them, and barbarians' heads appeared in the intervals of the battlements. Beams supported by long files of men were battering at the gates. And in order to demolish the wall at places where the terrace was wanting, the mercenaries came up in serried cohorts 
the first line crawling, the second bending their hams, and the others rising in succession to the last who stood upright, while elsewhere, in order to climb up, the tallest advanced in front and the lowest in the rear, and all rested their shields upon their helmets with their left arms, joining them together at the edges so tightly that they might have been taken for an assemblage of large tortoises. The projectiles slid over these oblique masses. The Carthaginians threw down millstones, pestles, vats, casks, beds, everything that could serve as a weight and could knock down. Some watched at the embrasures with fishermen's nets, and when the barbarian arrived, he found himself caught in the meshes and struggled like a fish. They demolished their own battlements. Portions of wall fell down, raising a great dust, and as the catapults on the terrace were shooting over one against another, the stones would strike together and shiver into a thousand pieces, making a copious shower upon the combatants. Soon the two crowds formed but one great chain, of human bodies. It overflowed into the intervals in the terrace, and, somewhat looser at the two extremities, swayed perpetually, without advancing. They clasped one another, lying flat on the ground like wrestlers. They crushed one another. The women leaned over the battlements and shrieked. They were dragged away by their veils, and the whiteness of their suddenly uncovered sides shone in the arms of the Negroes as the latter buried their daggers in them. Some corpses did not fall, being too much pressed by the crowd, and, supported by the shoulders of their companions, advanced for some minutes quite upright and with staring eyes. Some who had both temples pierced by a javelin swayed their heads about, like bears. Mouths open to shout remained gaping. Severed hands flew through the air. Mighty blows were dealt, which were long talked of by the survivors. Meanwhile, arrows darted from the towers of wooden stone. The Tolenos moved their long yards rapidly, and as the barbarians had sacked the old cemetery of the Aborigines beneath the catacombs, they hurled the tombstones against the Carthaginians. Sometimes the cables broke under the weight of two heavy baskets, and masses of men, all with uplifted arms, would fall from the sky. Up to the middle of the day, the veterans had attacked the Tania fiercely in order to penetrate into the harbor and destroy the fleet. Hamilcar had a fire of damp straw lit upon the roofing of Camon, and as the smoke blinded them, they fell back to left and came to swell the horrible rout which was pressing forward in Malqua. Some syntagmata composed of sturdy men, chosen expressly for the purpose, had broken in three gates. They were checked by lofty barriers made of planks studded with nails, but a fourth yielded easily. They dashed over it at a run and rolled into a pit in which there were hidden snares. At the southwest gate, Autoritus and his men broke down the rampart, the fissure in which had been stopped up with bricks. The ground behind rose, and they climbed it nimbly. But on the top, they found a second wall, composed of stones and long beams lying quite flat, and alternating like the squares on a chessboard. It was a Gaulish fashion, and had been adapted by the Sufit to the requirements of the situation, though Gauls imagined themselves before a town in their own country. Their attack was weak, and they were repulsed. All the roundway from the street of Camon as far as the Green Market now belonged to the barbarians, and the Samnites were finishing off the dying with blows of stakes, or else with one foot on the wall were gazing down at the smoking ruins beneath them, 
and a battle which was beginning again in the distance. The slingers who were distributed through the rear were still shooting, but the springs of the Acarnanian slings had broken from use, and many were still throwing stones with the hand, like shepherds. The rest hurled leaden bullets with the handle of a whip. Xarxus, his shoulders covered with his long black hair, went about everywhere and led on the barbarians. Two pouches hung at his hips. He thrust his left hand into them continually while his right arm whirled around like a chariot wheel. Matho had at first refrained from fighting, the better to command the barbarians all at once. He had been seen along the gulf with the mercenaries, near the lagoon with the Numidians, and on the shores of the lake among the Negroes, and from the back part of the plain he urged forward masses of soldiers who came ceaselessly against the ramparts. By degrees he had drawn near. The smell of blood, the sight of carnage, and the tumult of clarions had at last made his heart leap. Then he had gone back into his tent, and throwing off his cuirass, had taken his lion's skin as being more convenient for battle. The snout fitted upon his head, bordering his face with a circle of fangs. The two forepaws were crossed upon his breast, and the claws of the hinder ones fell beneath his knees. He had kept on his strong waist belt, wherein gleamed a two-edged axe, and with his great sword in both hands he had dashed impetuously through the breach, like a pruner cutting willow branches and trying to strike off as much as possible so as to make them more money. He marched along, mowing down the Carthaginians around him. Those who tried to seize him in flank, he knocked down with the blows of the pommel. When they attacked him in front, he ran them through. If they fled, he clove them. Two men leaped together upon his back. He bounded backwards against a gate and crushed them. His sword fell and rose. It shivered at the angle of a wall. Then he took his heavy axe, and front and rear he ripped up the Carthaginians like a flock of sheep. They scattered more and more, and he was quite alone when he reached the second enclosure at the foot of the Acropolis. The materials which had been flung from the summit cumbered the steps and were heaped up higher than the wall. Maso turned back amid the ruins to summon his companions. He perceived their crests scattered over the multitude. They were sinking, and their wearers were about to perish. He dashed towards them. Then the vast wreath of red plumes closed in, and they soon rejoined him and surrounded him. But an enormous crowd was discharging from the side streets. He was caught by the hips, lifted up, and carried away outside the ramparts to a spot where the terrace was high. Matho shouted a command and all the shields sank upon the helmets. He leaped upon them in order to catch hold somewhere so as to re-enter Carthage, and, flourishing his terrible axe, ran over the shields, which resembled waves of bronze, like a marine god with brandished trident over his billows. However, a man in a white robe was walking along the edge of the rampart, impassable and indifferent to the death which surrounded him. Sometimes he would spread out his right hand above his eyes in order to find out someone. Matho happened to pass beneath him. Suddenly, his eyeballs flamed, his livid face contracted, and raising both his lean arms, he shouted out abuse at him. Matho did not hear it, but 
He felt so furious and cruel a look entering his heart that he uttered a roar. He hurled his long axe at him. Some people threw themselves upon Shahabar. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And Matho, seeing him no more, fell back, exhausted. A terrible creaking drew near, mingled with the rhythm of hoarse voices singing together. It was the great Halepolis, surrounded by a crowd of soldiers. They were dragging it with both hands, hauling it with ropes and pushing it with their shoulders, for the slope rising from the plain to the terrace, although extremely gentle, was found impracticable for machines of such prodigious weight. However, it had eight wheels banded with iron, and it had been advancing slowly in this way since the morning, like a mountain raised upon another. Then there appeared an immense ram issuing from its base. The doors along the three fronts which faced the town fell down, and cuirassed soldiers appeared in the interior like pillars of iron. Some might be seen climbing and descending the two staircases which crossed the stories. Some were waiting to dart out as soon as the cramps of the doors touched the walls. In the middle of the upper platform, the skeins of the ballistas were turning, and the great beam of the catapult was being lowered. Hamilcar was, at that moment, standing upright on the roof of Melkarth. He had calculated that it would come directly towards him against what was the most invulnerable place in the wall, which was, for that very reason, denuded of sentries. His slaves had for a long time been bringing leathern bottles along the roundway, where they had raised with clay two transverse partitions forming a sort of basin. The water was flowing insensibly along the terrace, and, strange to say, it seemed to cause Hamilcar no anxiety. But when the Halepolis was thirty paces off, he commanded planks to be placed over the streets, between the houses, from the cisterns to the rampart, 
and a file of people passed from hand to hand, helmets and amphoras, which were emptied continuously. The Carthaginians, however, grew indignant at this waste of water. The ram was demolishing the wall when suddenly a fountain sprang forth from the disjointed stones. Then the lofty, brazen mass, nine stories high, which contained and engaged more than 3,000 soldiers, began to rock gently like a ship. In fact, the water, which had penetrated the terrace, had broken up the path before it. Its wheels stuck in the mire. The head of Spendius, with distended cheeks, blowing an ivory cornet, appeared beneath leathern curtains on the first story. The great machine, as though convulsively upheaved, advanced perhaps ten paces, but the ground softened more and more. The mire reached to the axles, and the helepolis stopped, leaning over frightfully to one side. The catapult rolled to the edge of the platform and, carried away by the weight of its beam, fell, shattering the lower stories beneath it. The soldiers who were standing on the doors slipped into the abyss, or else held on to the extremities of long beams, and by their weight increased the inclination of the helepolis, which was going to pieces with creakings in all its joints. The other barbarians rushed up to help them, massing themselves into a compact crowd. The Carthaginians descended from the rampart, and assailing them in the rear, killed them at leisure. But the chariots furnished with sickles hastened up and galloped around the outskirts of the multitude. The latter ascended the wall again. Night came on and the barbarians gradually retired. Nothing could now be seen on the plain but a sort of perfectly black, swarming mass which extended from the bluish gulf to the purely white lagoon, and the lake which had received streams of blood stretched further away like a great purple pool. The terrace was now so laden with corpses that it looked as though it had been constructed of human bodies. In the center stood the helepolis covered with armor, and from time to time huge fragments broke off from it, like stones from a crumbling pyramid. Broad tracks made by the streams of lead might be distinguished on the walls. A broken-down wooden tower burned here and there, and the houses showed dimly, like the stages of a ruined amphitheater. Heavy fumes of smoke were rising, and rolling with them sparks which were lost in the dark sky. Carthaginians, however, who were consumed by thirst, had rushed to the cisterns. They broke open the doors. A miry swamp stretched at the bottom. What was to be done now? Moreover, the barbarians were countless, and when their fatigue was over, they would begin again. The people deliberated all night in groups at the corners of the streets. Some said that they ought to send away the women, the sick, and the old men, Others proposed to abandon the town and found a colony far away, but vessels were lacking, and when the sun appeared, no decision had been made. There was no fighting that day, all being too much exhausted. The sleepers looked like corpses 
Then the Carthaginians, reflecting upon the cause of their disasters, remembered that they had not dispatched to Phoenicia the annual offering due to Tyrian Melkarth, and a great terror came upon them. The gods were indignant with the Republic, and were no doubt about to prosecute their vengeance. They were considered as cruel masters who were appeased with supplications and allowed themselves to be bribed with presents. All were feeble in comparison with Moloch, the devourer. The existence, the very flesh of men, belonged to him, and hence, in order to preserve it, the Carthaginians used to offer up a portion of it to him, which calmed his fury. Children were burned on the forehead or on the nape of the neck with woolen wicks, and as this mode of satisfying Baal brought in much money to the priests, they failed not to recommend it as being easier and more pleasant. This time, however, the republic itself was at stake. But as every profit must be purchased by some loss, and as every transaction was regulated according to the needs of the weaker and the demands of the stronger, there was no pain great enough for the god, since he delighted in such as was of the most horrible description, and all were now at his mercy. He must, accordingly, be fully gratified. Precedents showed that, in this way, the scourge would be made to disappear. Moreover, it was believed that an immolation by fire would purify Carthage. The ferocity of the people was predisposed towards it. The choice, too, must fall exclusively upon the families of the great. The ancients assembled. The sitting was a long one. Hanno had come to it. As he was now unable to sit, he remained lying down near the door, half hidden among the fringes of the lofty tapestry, and when the pontiff of Moloch asked them whether they would consent to surrender their children, his voice suddenly broke forth from the shadow like the roaring of a genius in the depths of a cavern. He regretted, he said, that he had none of his own blood to give, and he gazed at Hamilcar, who faced him at the other end of the hall. The Sufit was so much disconcerted by this look that it made him lower his eyes. All successively bent their heads in approval, and in accordance with the rites, he had to reply to the high priest, Yes, be it so. Then the ancients decreed the sacrifice in traditional circumlocution, because there are things more troublesome to say than to perform. The decision was almost immediately known in Carthage, and lamentations resounded. The cries of women might everywhere be heard. Their husbands consoled them, or railed at them with remonstrances. But three hours afterwards, extraordinary tidings were spread abroad. The Sufit had discovered springs at the foot of the cliff. There was a rush to the place. Water might be seen in holes dug in the sand, and some were already lying flat on the ground and drinking. Well, Hamilcar did not himself know whether it was by the determination of the gods or through the vague uh, recollection of a revelation which his father had once made to him. But on leaving the ancients, he had gone down to the shore and had begun to dig the gravel with his slaves. He gave clothing, boots, and wine. He gave all the rest of the corn that he was keeping by him. He even let the crowd enter his palace, and he opened kitchen stores in all the rooms, Salambos alone excepted. He announced that 6,000 Gaulish mercenaries were coming and that the king of Macedonia was sending soldiers. But on the second day, the springs diminished, and on the evening of the third, they were completely dried up. Then the decree of the ancients passed everywhere from lip to lip, and the priests of Moloch began their task. Men in black robes presented themselves in the houses. 
In many instances, the owners had deserted them under pretense of some business or of some dainty that they were going to buy, and the servants of Moloch came and took the children away. Others themselves surrendered them stupidly. Then they were brought to the temple of Tanit, where the priestesses were charged with their amusement and support until the solemn day. They visited Hamilcar suddenly and found him in his gardens. Barca, we come for that that you know of your son. They added that some people had met him one evening during the previous moon in the center of the Mapalian district, being led by an old man. He was as though suffocated at first. But speedily understanding that any denial would be in vain, Hamilcar bowed, and he brought them into the commercial house. Some slaves who had run up at a sign kept watch all round about it. He entered Salambo's room in a state of distraction. He seized Hannibal with one hand, snatched up the cord of a trailing garment with the other, tied his feet and hands with it, thrust the end into his mouth to form a gag, and hid him under the bed of the ox hides by letting an ample drapery fall to the ground. Afterwards he walked about from right to left, raised his arms, wheeled around, bit his lips. Then he stood still with staring eyelids and panted as though he were about to die. But he clapped his hands three times. Giddenham appeared. Listen, he said, go and take from among the slaves a male child from eight to nine years of age with black hair and swelling forehead. Bring him here. Make haste. Giddenham soon entered again, bringing forward a young boy. He was a miserable child, at once lean and bloated. His skin looked grayish, like the infected rag hanging to his sides. His head was sunk between his shoulders, and with the back of his hand he was rubbing his eyes, which were filled with flies. How could he ever be confounded with Hannibal? And there was no time to choose another. Hamilcar looked at Giddenham. He felt inclined to strangle him. Be gone, he cried, and the master of the slaves fled. The misfortune which he had so long dreaded was therefore come, and with extravagant efforts he strove to discover whether there was not some mode, some means to escape it. Abdalonim suddenly spoke from behind the door. The sufit was being asked for. The servants of Moloch were growing impatient. Hamilcar repressed a cry as though a red-hot iron had burnt him, and he began anew to pace the room like one distraught. Then he sank down beside the balustrade, and with his elbows on his knees, pressed his forehead into his shut fists. The porphyry basin still contained a little clear water for Salambo's ablutions. In spite of his repugnance and all his pride, the sufit dipped the child into it, and, like a slave merchant, began to wash him and rub him with striggles and red earth. Then he took two purple squares from the receptacles around the wall, placed one on his breast and the other on his back, and joined them together on the collarbones with two diamond clasps. He poured perfume upon his head, passed an electrum necklace around his neck, and put on him sandals with heels of pearl, sandals belonging to his own daughter. But he stamped with shame and vexation. Salambo, who busied herself in helping him, was as pale as he. The child, dazzled by such splendor, smiled, and, growing bold even, was beginning to clap his hands and jump, when Hamilcar took him away. He held him firmly by the arm as though he were afraid of losing him. And the child, who was hurt, wept a little as he ran beside him. When on a level with the ergastulum under a palm tree, a voice was raised, a mournful and supplicant voice. It murmured, Master, O oh Master. Hamilcar turned 
and beside him perceived a man of abject appearance, one of the wretches who led a haphazard existence in the household. "'What do you want?' said the Sufid. The slave, who trembled horribly, stammered, "'I, I am his father.' Hamilcar walked on, the other following him with stooping loins, bent hams, and head thrust forward. His face was convulsed with unspeakable anguish, and he was choking with suppressed sobs, so eager was he at once to question him and to cry, Mercy! At last he ventured to touch him lightly with one finger on the elbow. Are you going to... He had not the strength to finish and Hamilcar stopped, quite amazed at such grief. He had never thought, so immense was the abyss separating them from each other, that there could be anything in common between them. It even appeared to him a sort of outrage, an encroachment upon his own privileges. He replied with a look colder and heavier than an executioner's axe, the slave swooned and fell in the dust at his feet. Hamilcar strode across him. The three black-robed men were waiting in the great hall and standing against the stone disc. Immediately he tore his garments and rolled upon the pavement, uttering piercing cries. Ah, oh, poor little Hannibal! Oh, my son, my consolation, my hope! My life, kill me also, take me away, woe, woe. He plowed his face with his nails, tore at his hair, and shrieked like the women who lament at funerals. Take him away then, my suffering is too great. Be gone, kill me like him. The servants of Moloch were astonished that the great Hamilcar was so weak-spirited. They were almost moved by it. A noise of naked feet became audible with a broken throat rattling like the breathing of a wild beast speeding along. And a man, pale, terrible, and with outspread arms, appeared on the threshold of the third gallery, between the ivory pots. He exclaimed, My child! Hamilcar threw himself with a bound upon the slave, and covering the man's mouth with his hand, exclaimed still more loudly, It is the old man who reared him. He calls him my child. It will make him mad. Enough, enough! And hustling away the three priests and their victim, he went out with them, and with a great kick shut the door behind him. Hamilcar strained his ears for some minutes, in constant fear of seeing them return. He then thought of getting rid of the slave in order to be quite sure that he would see nothing, but the peril had not wholly disappeared, and if the gods were provoked at the man's death, it might be turned against his son. Then, changing his intention, he sent him by Tanakh, the best, from his kitchens, a quarter of a goat, beans, and preserved pomegranates. The slave, who had eaten nothing for a long time, rushed upon them. His tears fell into the dishes. Hamilcar at last returned to Salambo and unfastened Hannibal's cords. The child, in exasperation, bit his hand until the blood came. He repelled him with a caress. To make him remain quiet, Salambo tried to frighten him with Lamia, a Cyrenian ogress. But where is she? he asked. He was told that brigands were coming to put him in prison. Let them come, he rejoined, and I will kill them. Then Hamilcar told him the frightful truth. But he fell into a passion with his father, contending that he was quite able to annihilate the whole people since he was the master of Carthage. At last, 
exhausted by his exertions and anger. He fell into a wild sleep. He spoke in his dreams, his back leaning against a scarlet cushion. His head was thrown back somewhat, and his little arm, outstretched from his body, lay quite straight in an attitude of command. When the night had grown dark, Hamilcar lifted him up gently, and without a torch, went down the galley staircase. As he passed through the mercantile house, he took up a basket of grapes and a flagon of pure water. The child awoke before the statue of Elites in the vault of gems, and he smiled, like the other, on his father's arm, at the brilliant lights which surrounded him. Hamilcar felt quite sure that his son could not be taken from him. It was an impenetrable spot, communicating with the beach by a subterranean passage, which he alone knew, and casting his eyes around, he inhaled a great draft of air. Then he set him down upon a stool beside some golden shields. No one at present could see him. He had no further need for watching, and he relieved his feelings. Like a mother finding her firstborn that was lost, he threw himself upon his son. He clasped him to his breast. He laughed and wept at the same time. He called him by the fondest names and covered him with kisses. Little Hannibal was frightened by this terrible tenderness and was silent now. Hamilcar returned with silent steps, feeling the walls around him, and came into the great hall where the moonlight entered through one of the apertures in the dome. In the center the slave lay sleeping after his repast, stretched at full length upon the marble pavement. He looked at him and was moved with a sort of pity. With the tip of his cothern he pushed forward a carpet beneath his head, and then he raised his eyes and gazed at Tanit whose slender crescent was shining in the sky, and felt himself stronger than the balls, and full of contempt for them. The arrangements for the sacrifice were already begun. Part of a wall in the temple of Moloch was thrown down in order to draw out the brazen god without touching the ashes of the altar. Then, as soon as the sun appeared, the hierodules pushed it towards the square of Camon. It moved backwards, sliding upon cylinders. Its shoulders overlapped the walls. No sooner did the Carthaginians perceive it in the distance than they speedily took to flight, for the ball could be looked upon with impunity only when exercising his wrath. A smell of aromatics spread through the streets. All the temples had just been opened simultaneously, and from them there came forth tabernacles borne upon chariots or upon litters carried by the pontiffs. Great plumes swayed the corners of them, and rays were emitted from their slender pinnacles which terminated in balls of crystal, gold, silver, or copper. These were the Chananitish Balim, 
offshoots of the supreme Baal, who were returning to their first cause to humble themselves before his might and annihilate themselves in his splendor. Melkarth's pavilion, which was of fine purple, sheltered a petroleum flare. On Camon's, which was of hyacinth color, there rose an ivory phallus bordered with a circle of gems. Between Eshmoon's curtains, which were as blue as the ether, a sleeping python formed a circle with his tail, and the Patek gods, held in the arms of their priests, looked like great infants in swaddling clothes with their heels touching the ground. Then came all the inferior forms of the divinity, Baal Samin, god of celestial space, Baal Peor, god of the sacred mountains, Baal Zebub, god of corruption, with those of the neighboring countries and congenerous races, the Iarbal of Libya, the Adramalek of Chaldea, the Kajun of the Syrians, Derseta with her virgin's face, crept upon her fins, and the corpse of Tammuz was drawn along in the midst of a catafalque among torches and heads of hair. In order to subdue the kings of the firmament to the sun and prevent their particular influences from disturbing his, diversely colored metal stars were brandished at the end of long poles, and all were there, from the dark Neblo, the genius of Mercury, to the hideous Rahab, which is the constellation of the crocodile. The abadirs, stones which had fallen from the moon, were whirling in slings of silver thread. Little loaves representing the female form were borne on baskets by the priests of Ceres. Others brought their fetishes and amulets. Forgotten idols reappeared, while the mystic symbols had been taken from the very ships as though Carthage wished to concentrate herself wholly upon a single thought of death and desolation. Before each tabernacle, a man balanced a large vase of smoking incense on his head. Clouds hovered here and there, and the hangings, pendants, and embroideries of the sacred pavilions might be distinguished amid the thick vapors. These advanced slowly, owing to their enormous weight. Sometimes the axles became fast in the streets. Then the pious took advantage of the opportunity to touch the Balim with their garments, which they preserved afterwards as holy things. The brazen statue continued to advance towards the square of Camon. The rich, carrying scepters with emerald balls, set out from the bottom of Megara. The ancients, with diadems on their heads, had assembled in Canisto. And masters of the finances, governors of provinces, sailors, and the numerous horde employed at funerals, all with the insignia of their magistracies or the instruments of their calling, were making their way towards the tabernacles which were descending from the Acropolis between the colleges of the pontiffs. Out of deference to Moloch, they had adorned themselves with the most splendid jewels. Diamonds sparkled on their black garments, but their rings were too large and fell from their wasted hands. Nor could there have been anything so mournful as this silent crowd, where earrings tapped against pale faces and gold tiaras clasped brows contracted with stern despair. At last, the ball arrived exactly in the center of the square. His pontiffs arranged an enclosure with trellis work to keep off the multitude and remained around him at his feet. The priests of Camon, in tawny woolen robes, formed a line before their temple beneath the columns of the portico. Those of Eshmoon, in linen mantles with necklaces of Kukufas head and pointed tiaras, posted themselves on the steps of the Acropolis. The priests of Melkarth in violet tunics took the western side, 
The priests of the Abadirs, clasped with bands of Phrygian stuffs, placed themselves on the east, while towards the south, with the necromancers all covered with tattooings and the shriekers in patched cloaks, were ranged the curates of the Patek gods, and the Yidonim, who put the bone of a dead man into their mouths to learn the future. The priests of Ceres, who were dressed in blue robes, had prudently stopped in the street of Satheb, and in low tones were chanting a Thesmophorian in the Megarian dialect. From time to time files of men arrived, completely naked, their arms outstretched, and all holding one another by the shoulders. From the depths of their breasts they drew forth a hoarse and cavernous intonation. Their eyes, which were fastened upon the colossus, shone through the dust, and they swayed their bodies simultaneously. And at equal distances, as though they were all affected by a single movement, they were so frenzied that to restore order the hieroduels compelled them with blows of the stick to lie flat upon the ground with their faces resting against the brass trellis work. Then it was that a man in a white robe advanced from the back of the square. He penetrated the crowd slowly, and people recognized a priest of Tenet, the high priest Shahabarim. Hootings were raised, for the tyranny of the male principle prevailed that day in all consciences, and the goddess was actually so completely forgotten that the absence of her pontiffs had not been noticed. But the amazement was increased when he was seen to open one of the doors of the trellis work intended for those who intended to offer up victims. It was an outrage to their god, thought the priests of Moloch, that he had just committed, and they sought with eager gestures to repel him. Fed on the meat of the holocausts, clad in purple like kings, and wearing triple-storied crowns, they despised the pale eunuch, weakened with his macerations, and angry laughter shook their black beards, which were displayed on their breasts in the sun. Shahabarim walked on, giving no reply, and, traversing the whole enclosure with deliberation, reached the legs of the Colossus. Then, spreading out both arms, he touched it on both sides, which was a solemn form of adoration. For a long time, Rabet had been torturing him, and in despair, or perhaps for lack of a god that completely satisfied his ideas, he had at last decided for this one. The crowd, terrified by this act of apostasy, uttered a lengthened murmur. It was felt that the last tie which bound their souls to a merciful divinity was breaking. But owing to his mutilation, Shahabaram could take no part in the cult of the ball. The men in the red cloaks shut him out from the enclosure. Then, when he was outside, he went round all the colleges in succession, and the priest, henceforth without a god, disappeared into the crowd. It scattered at his approach. Meanwhile, a fire of aloes, cedar, and laurel was burning between the legs of the Colossus. The tips of its long wings dipped into the flame. The unguents with which it had been rubbed flowed like sweat over its brazen limbs. Around the circular flagstone on which its feet rested, the children, wrapped in black veils, formed a motionless circle, and its extravagantly long arms reached down their palms to them as though to seize the crown that they formed and carry it to the sky. The rich, the ancients, the women, the whole multitude thronged behind the priests and on the terraces of the houses. 
The large painted stars revolved no longer. The tabernacles were set upon the ground, and the fumes from the censers ascended perpendicularly, spreading their bluish branches through the azure like gigantic trees. Many fainted. Others became inert and petrified in their ecstasy. Infinite anguish weighed upon the breasts of the beholders. The last shouts died out one by one, and the people of Carthage stood breathless and absorbed in the longing of their terror. At last, the high priest of Moloch passed his left hand beneath the children's veils, plucked a lock of hair from their foreheads, and threw it upon the flames. Then the men in the red cloaks chanted the sacred hymn. Homage to thee, son, king of the two zones, self-generating creator, father and mother, father and son, god and goddess, goddess and god and their voices were lost in the outburst of instruments, sounding simultaneously to drown the cries of the victims. The eight-stringed sheminiths, the kinors which had ten strings, and the nibals which had twelve, grated, whistled, and thundered. Enormous leathern bags, bristling with pipes, made a shrill, clashing noise. The tambourines, beaten with all the players' might, resounded with heavy, rapid blows, and... In spite of the fury of the clarions, the Sal Salim snapped like grasshoppers' wings. The hierodules, with a long hook, opened the seven-storied compartments on the body of the ball. They put meal into the highest, two turtle doves into the second, an ape into the third, a ram into the fourth, a sheep into the fifth, and as no ox was to be had for the sixth, a tawny hide taken from the sanctuary was thrown into it. The seventh compartment yawned empty, still. Before undertaking anything, it was well to make trial of the arms of the god. Slender chainlets stretched from his fingers up to his shoulders and fell behind, where men, by pulling them, made the two hands rise to a level with the elbows and come close together against the belly. They were moved several times in succession with little abrupt jerks. Then the instruments were still. The fire roared. The pontiffs of Moloch walked about on the great flagstone, scanning the multitude. An individual sacrifice was necessary, a perfectly voluntary oblation, which was considered as carrying the others along with it. But no one had appeared up to the present, and the seven passages leading from the barriers to the Colossus were completely empty. Then the priests, to encourage the people, drew bodkins from their girdles and gashed their faces. The devotees, who were stretched on the ground outside, were brought within the enclosure. A bundle of horrible irons was thrown to them, and each chose his own torture. They drove in spits between their breasts. They split their cheeks. They put crowns of thorns upon their heads. Then they twined their arms together and surrounded the children in another large circle, which widened and contracted in turns. They reached to the balustrade. They threw themselves back again, and then began once more, attracting the crowd to them by the dizziness of their motion, with its accompanying blood and shrieks. And by degrees, people came into the end of the passages. They flung into the flames pearls, gold vases, cups, torches, all their wealth. The offerings became constantly more numerous and more splendid. At last, a man who tottered, a pale man and hideous with terror, thrust forward a child. Then a little black mass was seen between the hands of the Colossus, 
and sank into the dark opening. The priests bent over the edge of the great flagstone, and a new song burst forth, celebrating the joys of death and of new birth into eternity. The children ascended slowly, and as the smoke formed lofty eddies as it escaped, they seemed at a distance to disappear in a cloud. Not one stirred. Their wrists and ankles were tied, and the dark drapery prevented them from seeing anything and from being recognized. Hamilcar, in a red cloak like the priests of Moloch, was beside the ball, standing upright in front of the great toe of its right foot. When the fourteenth child was brought, everyone could see him make a great gesture of horror, but he soon resumed his former attitude, folded his arms, and looked upon the ground. The high pontiff stood on the other side of the statue, as motionless as he. His head, laden with an Assyrian mitre, was bent, and he was watching the gold plate on his breast. It was covered with fatidical stones, and the flame mirrored in it formed irisated lights. He grew pale and dismayed. Hamilcar bent his brow, and they were both so near the funeral pile that the hems of their cloaks brushed it as they rose from time to time. The brazen arms were working more quickly. They paused no longer. Every time that a child was placed in them, the priests of Moloch spread out their hands upon him to burden him with the crimes of the people, vociferating, They are not men but oxen, and the multitude round about repeated, Oxen, oxen, the devout exclaimed, Lord, eat, and the priests of Proserpine, complying through terror with the needs of Carthage, muttered the Eleusinian formula. Pour out rain, bring forth. The victims, when scarcely at the edge of the opening, disappeared like a drop of water on a red-hot plate, and white smoke rose amid the great scarlet color. Nevertheless, the appetite of the god was not appeased. He ever wished for more. In order to furnish him with a larger supply, the victims were piled up on his hands, with a big chain above them which kept them in their place. Some devout persons had, at the beginning, wished to count them to see whether their number corresponded with the days of the solar year. But others were brought, and it was impossible to distinguish them in the giddy motion of the horrible arms. This lasted for a long, indefinite time, until the evening. Then the partitions inside assumed a darker glow and burning flesh could be seen. Some even believed that they could descry hair, limbs, and whole bodies. Night fell. Clouds accumulated above the ball. The funeral pile, which was flameless now, formed a pyramid of coals up to his knees, completely red, like a giant covered with blood. He looked with his head thrown back as though he were staggering beneath the weight of his intoxication. In proportion, as the priests made haste, the frenzy of the people increased. As the number of the victims was diminishing, some cried out to spare them, others that still more were needful. The walls, with their burden of people, seemed to be giving way beneath the howlings of terror and mystic voluptuousness. Then the faithful came into the passages, dragging their children who clung to them, and they beat them in order to make them let go, and handed them over to the men in red. The instrument players sometimes stopped through exhaustion. Then the cries of the mothers might be heard, and the frizzling of the fat as it fell upon the coals. The henbane drinkers crawled on all fours around the colossus, roaring like tigers. The Yedonim 
vaticinated. The devotees sang with their cloven lips. The trellis work had been broken through. All wished for a share in the sacrifice. And fathers, whose children had died previously, cast their effigies, their playthings, their preserved bones into the fire. Some who had knives rushed upon the rest. They slaughtered one another. The hierodules took the fallen ashes at the edges of the flagstone in bronze fans and cast them into the air that the sacrifice might be scattered over the town and even to the region of the stars. The loud noise and great light had attracted the barbarians to the foot of the walls. They clung to the wreck of the Helepolis to have a better view and gazed open-mouthed in horror. So that was chapter 13. Uh, pretty rough going there. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to give you a personal reaction to this. Um, it, <laughs> this, um, this chapter is, seems about as far from our current uh, present-day society as it's possible to imagine. But um, I think you could certainly see similarities, unfortunately, with uh, today's society. Not so vividly and immediately cruel as this, but at a bureaucratic remove, where the children of the poor uh, are put in place of the children of the rich when it comes time to sacrifice. I will leave you with that thought, and I will see you in chapter 14. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.